Hi, welcome to another episode of Bump, Birth and Beyond, proudly produced by Tony Hart's Education and presented by myself, Dr. Joseph Scroy. I've got Sarah today and Sarah's going to share a wonderful story about her childbirth and particularly we're going to focus on today about tocophobia mm-hmm. and that's a medical term for the fear of childbirth. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that there's a lot of women who are fearful of childbirth and, mm-hmm. and whether that be a vaginal birth or a cesarean section. And in some cases, it does delay their attempts to become pregnant and raises a heightened level of anxiety during pregnancy as well. So thank you so much for coming, Sarah, and, and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Dr. Joe. Um, so let's have a little bit of a chat about, well, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and also about your, your son. So I'm currently 45 and Jack is two and a half. Um, he's a beautiful little boy and we're totally in love and he's just um, he's an apple of our eye. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you know, when you were thinking about becoming pregnant, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, in terms of your journey to, to becoming pregnant, what was mm-hmm. sort of the things that were sort of delaying your your mindset in terms of becoming pregnant mm-hmm. itself? Mm-hmm. Well, firstly, I did meet my partner, Craig, a little bit later in life. I spent a massive chunk of my 30s in uh, Dubai, I was a flight attendant. I actually spent about 15, I spent 15 years uh, in the Middle East flying. So um, I came back to Australia and met my partner Craig on Tinder about seven years ago. So I met him a bit later in life. Um, and we got engaged pretty soon after that and realised we'd like to start a family um, and uh, just uh, kept uh, delaying. delaying it. Yeah, delaying so tell us a little bit about well, obviously being overseas in in the in the Middle East and flying. I mean, you, had you ever thought about becoming pregnant or meeting someone when you were overseas? Um, obviously, I'd, I'd like to, but it was a bit difficult to meet anyone in the Middle East. And yeah. obviously, with with flying, we were constantly, you know, out of you know, just we were working. They worked us hard. Right. There was very little opportunity to meet anyone. So you got to see yeah. a lot of the world? Of course, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. A, that's a yeah. flip side of that. Yeah, right? definitely. And, you know, you, we, you talked a little bit about before off, off air how you were, you had a little bit of anxiety anyway, mm-hmm. predisposition mm-hmm. to anxiety. Mm. How did that manifest itself when you were a flight attendant? Um, well, it was quite a, quite a nerve-wracking um, experience living an expat life so far away from family. It did actually add to um, anxieties and worries and um, we're all, all, always working so hard, which also led to a lot of fatigue, which I, I, I guess also um, contributed to my anxiety and worry, you know, worries and, and were you worried about flying itself? Yeah, that, that always was um, a, a concern. So I've always been quite an anxious person. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was at times quite challenging. Yeah. And so what, what sort of things went through you? I mean, what were the things in terms of flying that made you feel anxious? Oh, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the, the fear of what, what could happen to us at 38,000 feet, um, you know, flying so much we were always sort of little things happening, you know, dropping dropping um, altitudes and aborted takeoffs and all of that which added to, uh, you know, anxiety. And was there anything that the airline sort of helped, did to, in order to help yeah. you get through those that, that process of that anxiety? Yeah, well, during our training there was quite a bit on um, anxiety and um, also assisting pa- um, tra- travellers and um, um Airlines, Airline, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, obviously talking to us about um, the safety of the aircraft, and that you know really was a safe, safe place to be. I was saying before that um, when I was a junior doctor and before I did ONG, I mm. did a lot of a lot of work for the AMA. So I was travelling from Melbourne to Canberra to Sydney to meet with politicians or with mm. other doctors from around Australia. And I think being a Type A personality, mm. I found it very difficult to fly that loss mm. of control. And the fact that whenever I got into a plane, I it just had, you know, I was in this metal cylinder mm-hmm. and I was thinking, oh my God, what could happen? I hated turbulence as well. And every single time I got onto a plane, I'd have sweaty palms. It was terrible. Yeah. But one of the things that helped me was sort of to rationalize it, like you were mm-hmm. saying before, and think about well, what's the what's the reason I'm feeling this way. And also I visualised a lot of stuff. So I pretend when I'm on the plane that I'm actually the pilot and I can see the horizon, I can see it banking to the left or banking to the right. 
and that helps a bit. And I think we're quite fortunate now we can jump on our phones and watch a movie and sort of dissociate to mm-hmm. a certain degree about what's happening. Mm. So you said you met Craig a little bit later on in life and um, so, you know, at that point in time when you met him, had you thought about being a mum? When I had, I had thought about it and obviously meeting him, I realised that, you know, we, we were in love, got engaged and then decided that, yeah, I'd like to, like to start a family with him. And, what, yeah. and so that, I mean, obviously you met him seven years ago, yeah, mm-hmm. Jack's two, you mm-hmm. said. So there were five years there. So mm-hmm. what was the reason for the delay in your own mind as yep. to why it took you a while to become pregnant? Well, it was just personally my fear of childbirth. That, right. was, the, that was the reason. And I kept delaying it. Um, you know, there was always a wedding or a party or a gathering and Craig kept saying to me, I can actually remember where he was standing when he said to me, "There's never really going to be a good time, is there? Yeah. And you know, never going to get you're never going to get pregnant. There's there's ne- never really going to be the right time." And so you obviously had this fear. Where where did you where did you get the fear from? Like apart from just the general level of anxiety, what were the inputs? Who was mm-hmm. telling you bad stuff that yeah. made you fear that way? I, I m- mainly contributed particularly to my age and a lot of my girlfriends and my, my, well, my sister have all got their birth stories and they'd all contributed to it and all told me their, their horror stories and none of them really told me any good stories. So I was always just going on the, the their, their, you know, horror, horror yeah, stories. Negativity. Negativity, horror. yeah. And so what were, I mean, what were some of the stories that you were hearing? Well, one of my girlfriends, um, she was one of my flight attendant friends from Dubai. She actually just said to me, Sarah, when, when you do get pregnant, you just need to ask your obstetrician straight away. Just ask him for a C-section. Just, you know, introduce yourself. It's much easier. Have the C-section. Um, and so that way you've got nothing to worry about. Right. Um, my sister had also had a, um, had a horrific um, uh, um, birthing situation where she had to have an an emergency C-section and the um, the blocker didn't work, so she told me about that and that was quite graphic and pretty horrific. Yeah. Um, so there were just all these contributing factors and obviously the media and the po- listening to podcasts and um, TV, Instagram, it was just all contributing to my anxieties. And now obviously you've had Jack two years later and we'll talk about your birth experience at the, at the latter part of this uh, episode, but do you feel that, that has changed on social media in the media? Like are there more positive birth experiences now or do you still think the sensationalism is all about the negative aspects of childbirth? Well, at the, do you know what, I'm not really even, because it's not relevant. Right. I'm not really listening or, or um, yeah, I, I, you're probably right, but I'm, because it's not in my headspace, I'm not actually listening to the noise, yeah, the about noise. That stuff. correct? Yeah, it's, like, yeah, blocking it's it often like, it's often like this, isn't it? Like you, when you get engaged, you notice everyone's rings. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my god, look at her carrot. Yeah. Look how many carrots she must have. That you yeah. know. And then when you when you get pregnant, you notice every single Everything. pregnant belly. And then yeah. when you have a baby, you notice everyone's prams. Yes. So as yeah, yeah. what's relevant at one particular time in your life is less relevant, obviously. Now it's all about two year olds. It's all about two year olds. The wiggles. Yeah. The Wiggles, Spider-Man. Oh, jeez. Paw Patrol. Oh, yeah, amazing. all of that. <laughs> oh, I've got a one-year-old and at the moment she's just loving the Wiggles. The Wiggles. <laughs> oh, the Wiggles. So unfortunately, as most uh, of parents are out there at the moment are probably struggling with this mm. whole isolation mm. and quarantining. And so I think we're quite fortunate now mm. that we've got Netflix and we've got Stan and we've got all, you know, the television running mm-hmm. 24-7. YouTube. You can actually, YouTube, yeah, you can yeah. actually put the kids in front of the television. I mean, it's bad, but... You know, I suppose mum and dad at occasions need a bit of time off. Yeah. What are you doing Absolutely. actually to get through all this quarantine? Um, well, my my work's allowed me to work from home so I can actually very easily um, work remotely. Um, so you're not a flight attendant at the moment? Not a flight attendant at the moment. No, I work in the car industry. Right. Um, and I have actually got my little one at daycare two days a week just so that I can focus on work predominantly for, for the two two days and the other days just um, work while he has his day sleep. Um, but I, I was actually very lucky to work from home um, after my after I'd had Jack, so for the mainly for the whole year while he, while he was one, I was working from home. So um, I'd had a little bit of a trial run. So we're doing we're doing pretty doing well. well, yeah. 
So Craig obviously had a bit of a chat with you and he said, look, Sarah, it's not, there's no, not ever going to be a right time. Mm-hmm. So what then made you say, okay, well, I better just get cracking onto this? Yeah, it was basically the clock was ticking. I was 41 and I just thought it's going to be now or never. And I decided that I really did want to have a, a child, a baby. Right. Yeah. So had there been a maternal instinct throughout your life or was it, this was sort of the crunch point for you? It was pretty much after meeting Craig, yeah. It w- I mean, while I was flying, it was all about flying and, you know, travelling and hotels and countries and the, I never really thought of it because in the Middle East, well, in my little bubble, there wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing about family. Right. It was more about flying and travelling. Um, but after meeting Craig, I decided that yeah, the maternal instincts did, did kick in. So did you feel that Craig sort of in a way guided you to that, that thinking that, okay, it's time mm-hmm. now to get to get going. Yeah, I, I definitely think he contributed to the the, the decision and the the, to, the the time was right. Yeah. So how between you first meeting Craig until when you then had got pregnant? How how long had that been? That whole time. Mm-hmm. So I we'd met I'd met Craig five years before. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was a fair yeah. while. It was so, a fair while. So there was yeah. a fair amount of time of, you know, yeah, there's a wedding coming up. Yeah, there was, I don't want to there was a lot of parties. Now. Yeah. <laughs> parties beforehand. Yeah. Was he getting frustrated, do you think? I think, yeah, pretty sure he was because from him saying there's never really going to be a good time, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was pretty frustrated. And do you think it was, yeah. it was it a subconscious thought or was it co- you were conscious of the fact, I don't want to get pregnant because I'm worried about the fear of Absolutely. birth? That was, that was the forefront of my... Of my thinking, yeah. All right. So yep. you, did, you did get pregnant and do you remember the time, do you remember how you found out you were pregnant? Yep. Um, I remember very well. My periods were always on the dot, spot on on the day. Um, I was a day late and I knew from that day I was pregnant. Did you have any symptoms? Um, no, I didn't have any symptoms. I was just a day. I was just, no, just a day no, late. I was just a day late. Was, really? Yeah, and that was yeah. enough. That was it. I you went into nev- my mum. You were never ever a, d- a day late before. No, never. Wow. Yeah, it was. I was really regular, and I went and told my mum. I said, "Mum, I think I'm pregnant." Went and did a pregnancy test, and sure enough. And did yeah, you have any right. assistance with with uh, trying to become pregnant? Assistance? No. No. No, we were we were really lucky. Yeah. Um, before. Um, we decided to um, to to have a baby. Uh, I did a, a test to check my egg levels, right. um, and that came back um, for my age. My egg levels, the quality of my eggs were very good. Um, you can probably explain in, it better than me. Of, yeah. yeah. Well, I, so uh, Sarah's talking about the AMH, which is the anti-malarian hormone, which is secreted. This is a hormone that's secreted by the little. Um, if you imagine. Inside your ovary, you've got a, a group of very small little eggshells, little like follicles we call them, but eggshells, and they eventually become bigger and bigger and bigger and to the point that obviously you ovulate. So the anti-malarian hormone looks at the underlying ovarian reserve mm-hmm. and uh, that the ovarian reserve, we utilise that, I'm putting my fertility specialist hat on, we use that to guide us in terms of how many eggs we might retrieve during an IVF cycle. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, the AMH is not indicative of the fact whether a woman will become pregnant or not. Mm-hmm. So as an example, a woman with polycystic ovary syndrome mm-hmm. who doesn't ovulate frequently will have a very high ovarian reserve, so her AMH will be exceptionally high. But she won't ovulate. Mm-hmm. So as a result, even though she's 25, she's not ovulating and hence she's not getting pregnant. Whereas a woman might be 40 or 41 like yourself mm-hmm. and just ovulate one follicle each time and that's all she needs to become mm-hmm. pregnant. But it's certainly true that, that the biggest determinant of pregnancy is not necessarily underlying ovarian reserve but rather the quality of the eggs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we do find is that from the age of 33 onwards, uh, the quality of a woman's eggs unfortunately deteriorates and mm-hmm. becomes, it becomes a lot harder to become pregnant. So mm-hmm. that by the time you're 40, uh, you know, the chance of pregnancy is a lot lower than a woman who's in her 20s. And so I always say to women and couples, you know, whenever they come and see me with respect to wanting to conceive, I say the best time to conceive is when you're physically, financially, socially, emotionally and medically ready to mm-hmm. do so understanding really that not all five things are going to match at each any given time. So you, there's going to be a bit of give and take. So you might say, well, okay, you know what, 
we're in a position where you know, ideally we'd like to be living somewhere else, but, you know, we know that we want to be, we're medically fit, you know, we're fine financially, we're okay, so, yeah, we should become pregnant. And I think mm-hmm. obviously you got to that point mm-hmm. when you met Craig because socially and emotionally you were ready to, mm-hmm. to have a baby. Absolutely. So you go along to your first obstetrician appointment, which would have been around about six weeks, and what was what was the initial discussion that you had? Yep, so I pretty much introduced myself and I told my obstetrician that my request and wish was to have um, an elective C-section and that's what I was going to do. Um, and then he proceeded to, he actually said, um, nice to meet you, Sarah, I'm going to do my best to try and talk you out of that decision and these are my reasons for it. And you gave, you went very clearly through the pros and cons of each of having a vaginal birth or a C-section. And then from that moment on, we never actually discussed the C-section for the whole pregnancy. That never came up ever again. I think it's important to just discuss that. Even with my own patients, I'll have a lot of patients who, like yourself, come and see me with respect to uh, a request for for a caesarean section. Indeed, I, I remember one case of, of a patient of mine who was a, a midwife colleague that worked at the women's hospital with me, uh, who said he came at her first ever appointment and said, "Joe, I want to have a caesarean." And I said, "I said to her, um, you know, why do you want to have a caesarean?" Mm. She said, "Well, you know what happens at the women's." And I said, "Yeah, but that's part of the reason why you've come and seen me, so you know how I work and you know that you know what we what we do in order to to not end up having these." Um, you know, in a way, you know, the fearful traumatic mm. birth experiences that women so, get worried about. And we unbundled a lot of the reasons why she wanted to have a caesarean section or why she would, didn't want to have a vaginal birth mm. rather. And her major issue was centred around the birthing experiences she'd been involved with with doctors and all midwives who delivered babies in the, in the, uh, in the public sector. And we put in place a plan so she mm-hmm. knew exactly what was going to happen, exactly what I was going to do at what point in mm-hmm. time so that when she got through her child, when she, when she was going through labour herself, she knew, okay, well, if this happens, this is what Joe's going to do mm-hmm. and if this happens. So what did your obstetrician, I mean, what, what, what sort of things had you discussed at that initial appointment with your obstetrician as to what were the key things that were troubling mm-hmm. you in terms of having it, well, why you wanted to have a Caesar? Yeah, and he did ask me, um, he did unpack it with me too um, and I was very honest with him and I, I told him it was that I had a, a major fear of childbirth and that I'd had um, all these contributing um, factors, my friends and girlfriends and family giving me their horror stories. So we, we discussed that so he realised what he was dealing with. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because I think at the end of the day, if we find ourselves in a situation where we're talking specifically about pain, well, then we can talk about, well, how do we mitigate against mm-hmm. having pain during childbirth? And some of it might be utilising, you know, hypnobirthing or alternatively, um, uh, you know, medication that we mm-hmm. can use all the way through to, to an epidural. And, mm-hmm. and, and often just the relaxation techniques is all that's required. Mm-hmm. If it's related, like I said before, with my my midwife colleague that came and saw me with respect to her birth, it was about, you know, well, I've seen this happen and I don't want that to happen. Mm. So what will you do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Mm. Or, you know, I just want to be talked to and, and made sure that I'm a part of it. And, and, and I think nowadays it's really incumbent on us as obstetricians and, and midwives mm. to be informing our patients about what we do. Because I think a lot, a lot of the issues around the fear of childbirth, and moreover, the fear—not so much the fear of childbirth, but the traumatic experience mm. that some women have about childbirth—is this, this the fact that they don't feel like they've been put in a position where they've they've actually been informed about mm-hmm. what's happened, and there's been a loss of control, mm-hmm. and they feel that in some cases women have felt abused. So, part of being good at what we do mm-hmm. as doctors and midwives is really bringing patients or bringing women, pregnant women, on the journey of not only their pregnancy and also their childbirth so that at the end mm. they feel not only invested but they feel like they have actually participated, which I think is really important. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. That's exactly yeah. how I felt yeah. towards the end of my pregnancy. That's good. Yeah. So when we'll talk about, I, I, want, I do want to focus on your childbirth because I think it's particularly important, I think, to have a positive birth experience mm-hmm. as opposed to the, you know, hearing about horrific ones mm-hmm. all the times. But 
So tell us a little bit. I ask everyone these questions mm. about uh, gender reveals. Did you find yeah. out the gender of Jack? Um, yeah, I did find out the gender of Jack. I actually pride myself on having very strong intuition and I knew he was a boy. Yeah. Um, and the midwife called me and she said, would you like to know the sex of the baby? And I said, yeah, I already know it's, he's a boy. And she said, how do you already know? And she said, he's a boy. Um, so, But we didn't back then. The gender reveals weren't really that um Popular. Big, yeah, not that popular. It becomes um, very, yeah. very popular now. <laughs> yeah, the balloons. The balloons. Yeah. I've already talked about the balloons on a previous <laughs> yeah. episode. We've seen the woman who's passed air and she passed it with the colour of the baby. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, my, oh my gosh. What yeah. next? <laughs> <laughs> people come up with some funny funny ways to tell yeah. people. But um, all right, so and, and tell us a little bit about the, the were there any concerns? I mean, obviously being a person that you've already sort of said you've got an underlying level of anxiety, mm-hmm. were there any other anxiety things that were happening during the pregnancy that you were particularly mm-hmm. worried about? Mm-hmm. Um, my main concern was um, his heartbeat. You talk to, you, you see, again, you see in the media of um, the unfortunate um, occurrence of of the baby, um, baby's heartbeat stopping and the baby obviously not surviving. So that was a main concern of mine. Had you had any um, friends of yours that had had similar yes, experiences yeah, with that? Yeah, yeah, I had I had a girlfriend that had gone through that um, whilst I was pregnant. So that became um, a, a huge anxiety, a huge problem. So she actually had yeah. she had a stillbirth. A stillbirth, oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. So that was How many weeks was she? I'm pretty sure she was about 32 weeks. Wow. Yeah. And are you still in contact with her? Yeah, I'm still in contact, and she's um, since had two um, two oh, babies excellent. since then. So excellent. yeah, that must be exceptionally hard. Yeah. And how did you, at that point in time, obviously being a person that was still pregnant, mm. how did your relationship with mm. her? What had it go up? You know, during that time. Well, she was she wasn't really a, a really close friend. Obviously, with Facebook and social media, you yeah. become you become friends of friends of, of friends. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm pretty sure I reached out to her and sent her a message of support, given that I was also pregnant at the same time. Um, but yeah, very happy that she's had, managed oh, to have great. another two. Yeah. So that that obviously feeds into a level yep. of anxiety. So when you were going to your your um, obstetrician appointments, what sort of things were you concerned about at those times that you were actually you know going to the yep. going to the appointments? Well, my main concern was that his his he still had a heartbeat and he was still healthy and everything was okay. So those appointments were you know, it was, there was definitely sweaty palms at those appointments and right. very reassuring when you look up on the screen and seeing everything's fine and then my obstetrician um, verbalising um, what was happening and, and telling me about what he was watching on the screen and right. hearing. And, and during the pregnancy, were you feeling movements quite well with Bubba? No, that's another thing. Jack, um, Jack is... Was still he's still a pretty placid baby, but he was very placid when he was in my tummy. Um, so didn't he? I didn't feel a lot of um, you know bumps and um, kicks because you hear. I used to hear a lot of my girlfriends saying that they couldn't sleep at night time because the baby was kicking so much, and I never really experienced anything like that. Right. Um, so. And often, and I often describe that. So a lot of my patients will have. The, you know, the placenta obviously supplies all the nutrients to the mm-hmm. baby, but the placenta can either lie in front of Bubba or it can lie at the back or the side. So I often describe the uterus as like an Aussie Wolves football and mm-hmm. if you or a rugby football if you live up north. And if you imagine you're putting a baby inside the footy and then underneath the laces within, within the football, you actually put a, a um, pillow. Mm-hmm. And then you imagine that baby punching the pillow. You can then... You can then get the sense that if you were to put your hands where the laces are, you're not going to feel the baby mm. punching as well. And so that often happens when the placenta sits in front of Bubba. So mm. if you imagine the placenta sits right underneath your belly button and the baby's punching this placenta, the placenta takes a lot of the cushion mm-hmm. of the baby's blows, so to speak. And as a result, women tend to feel the baby a lot less. So and a lot of my patients will complain of decreased movements in that respect. But when we do an ultrasound scan, we can see baby actively mm. moving. But I think it's really important, and we've, we've touched on this previously in episodes, but if you're not feeling baby move, mm. it's really important that you go and see your caregiver, whether it be your midwife or your obstetrician, um, because, you know, we're concerned enough mm. that we need to make sure the baby's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and whilst we're not so much worried about 
necessarily counting the number of kicks a baby mm. have. It's more generally the, the pattern of movement that the baby had. Mm-hmm. If you notice a change in the movements, yep. it's really important to come and see Bub, uh, come and see um, the obstetrician or midwife to, to check Bub out. Yep. So was there any point in time where you were really worried about Jack during the pregnancy? Um. I was, I was pretty worried about him every day. It was just, I guess, because I was an anxious person, there was always that level of worry. Um, had you, had, yeah. During your pregnancy or prior to pregnancy, had you seen a psychologist at all? Yeah, I had seen a psychologist, but not about this particular, just about my anxieties. Generally. On a, on a general, yeah. And during the pregnancy, had you seen anyone about your fears no. of birth? No, I didn't. I didn't. And I didn't. I didn't really feel I, I needed to because right. my obstetrician was just so, it was just, well, I remember him just being so cool, calm and collected. And I almost felt like he was almost like my psychiatrist in a way. He, I was feeding off his confidence and um, just every time I went to see him, any questions I had, and I always had questions, um, he just instilled so much calmness and, and you know, his, his attitude was, you know, I got this and I just thought I'm just going to let the chips fall and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we never really discussed the C-section after the first appointment. Right, okay. So obviously the pregnancy's gone pretty well. We yeah. get to the 20-week mm. mark and, mm-hmm. and were there any issues at that 20-week scan that no. anyone was concerned about? No, there was. I had an absolute dream pregnancy. Did you get, yeah. pe- did you get people sort of offering their opinions about, oh. you know, how oh, you yeah. are? Yeah. Or, of course. What, what, was, what are some of the... The, the sort of the standouts, do you remember oh, any of that? I remember one of the girls at work and she said to me quite clearly, right, after you've had the baby, you're going to have pain. You're either going to have pain down below or you're going to have pain from your stomach, from your C-section. So there'll be pain. There'll be a lot of pain. I yeah. remember her saying that to me. Um, but, yeah, everyone had their two cents. Every And I'm very wary of that now. There's a girl at work and um, I'm, I'm trying not to give my two cents because I, I remember that annoyed me so much yeah. during my pregnancy because everyone, every mum had their own little story. I think we, we live in a, like we live in a community, obviously, and as I've said previously, you know, you, you normally, if you were pregnant and having a baby, you'll have seen heaps of births mm. beforehand. And, of course, we don't now. We just see them on the TV or social media. But... I think when a woman is pregnant, because mm. we still feel we're part of this community, everyone feels as though they've got to add their two bits, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, this is what you should do here, this is what you should exactly. do there. Or, you know, geez, you look small. Are yeah. you sure you're not having yes. kids? Yes, there was all of that. <laughs> and obviously being 41 at the time when I was pregnant, there was a lot of, there was, there was a lot of people putting in their two cents from, you know, from a very were people know. still? I mean, obviously you'd thought about having a cesarean section and fortunately your obstetrician had sort of, maybe giving you some confidence that a vaginal birth was possible, but were mm. there still people saying to you, mm. are you having a Caesar? Just book it in, make it an appointment. Just It's just like going to get your hair, you know, hair blow waved or your hair coloured, just yeah. book it in. Um, there was, there were, yeah, there was definitely um, people in my ear, um, but I blocked it out. My obstetrician was who I was, I, I, who I entrusted and I was listening to him and I just I basically focused on our first appointment and yeah. everything that he said to me that day. I just ran with it. Hey guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. So obviously you were a lot calmer because of cause of the rapport that you'd had with the mm-hmm. obstetrician. But just to take you back to your fear, your fear was pre- predominantly around pain, or, pain. Was it, or was it around the actual birthing process? It was about the pain. And, yeah. d- and did you have an idea after that first appointment or during the during the consultations for the pregnancy about mm. how you were going to manage the manage pain? It. Yeah. Well, um, my doctor discussed the options at the first appointment and, and a lot of other, other friends had said epidural straight away, um, get that as soon as you, you can. So my doctor discussed um, predominantly that if we did go down the path of the natural vaginal birth that the epidural would um, eliminate most of that pain that I was anxious about um, and I'd also heard from the other other friends giving me, you know, positive stories that when they'd had their birthing, 
their birth, that an epidural was the best way of... And I think it's nice to, to touch on the epidural. I mean, a lot of a lot of women who are wanting a vaginal birth, and I, I don't call it a normal vaginal birth. I think it is a vaginal birth, mm-hmm. and then there's a cesarean birth. And 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 my and I've said this before. My mantra is: every single woman's birthing experience is unique to mm-hmm. her, and mm-hmm. no woman should be judged for that birthing experience. Mm. But a vaginal birth, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you know some women can do it without any any gas, can some women can do it without any morphine or pethidine. Uh, some women can do it with, you know, with, with water injections or the TENS machine. But I don't think there should be any sense of judgment. Now, no one walks out of a birth and gets a gold star Mm-mm. because they've done it without any, without any um, pain relief. Mm. A lot of women do get concerned, and my own patients included, where they're worried that the, the epidural is going to slow down labour. Mm-hmm. There's certainly no evidence it does that. Mm. Uh, there's, there's, there would be a, an, a, an element of uh, requiring an additional assistance. So mm. because the epidurals um, uh, can cause a complete block in the sensation of particularly the baby's head coming mm-hmm. down, that may limit a woman's ability to be able to push. Mm-hmm. And so that often means that uh, obstetricians need to assist either with a vacuum or forceps. Mm-hmm. However, with modern obstetric anaesthesia, so a lot of the anaesthetists now are using patient-controlled anaesthetics. So mm. the anaesthetic goes into the, and it may not have been around when you were mm. when you were in labour, but certainly in the last couple of years mm. it's been in vogue where the anaesthetic going into mm. the into the spinal cord and into the epidural space mm. is actually controlled by the woman herself. Wow. So as you're getting towards the latter part of your labour, so that you've got the sensation of where you need to push, you can actually dial down how much analgesia you give mm-hmm. yourself. And if you need more, you mm. press the button. And if you don't need more, you don't press the button. But it gives a good sense of where you need to push. Mm-hmm. And anecdotally, even in my own practice, I've noticed a drop in the amount of women needing assistance mm. because they know specifically where to push. Mm. And that's a, quite a good thing. And I think at the end of the day, you know, there's some women who are very mindful and, and, and are not wanting an epidural and some women who are. But there's very few women who come away having had an epidural mm. and gone, I wish I never did that. Mm. Oh, no, I, cer- I certainly wasn't one of those people. Yeah. I was very happy I got it. So the remainder of the pregnancy went smoothly, I presume? Everything went everything went smoothly. It was a dream, honestly, a dream pregnancy. And had there been any had there been any talk about an induction of labour being that you were a little bit older mm-hmm. or, and what sort of discussion was had with respect to that? Yeah, be- well, obviously because I was older, my obstetrician uh, asked for for me to be induced at the 39-week stage. Um, and so I, I went into the hospital um, in the during the night and he gave me a balloon. You've probably explained a little bit better than, than myself. Yeah, so so there are many ways. I mean, I, I tend to like doing balloons as well. So one of the things that we we can do with, um, with uh, an induction lab, so the way that I like to describe it is imagine Again, that the uterus being a footy, and at the bottom of the football is the cervix, and the cervix is like the skivvy or the neck of the womb. Mm-hmm. It's like if you imagine the, the uterus is like a balloon, it's the, the neck of that balloon, mm. which you can imagine is, you know, quite long. And so during pregnancy, it's around three centimetres long and quite, quite uh, tightly closed. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen during the course of labour is that the neck of the balloon needs to gather up, a bit like gathering up a skivvy, Mm-hmm. And then it needs to stretch open to 10 centimetres. So if you imagine putting a skivvy on a child and you just grab it, pop it over their head, mm-hmm. they're going to scream and they're going to yell at you as that skivvy's coming around their head because they can't see and they can't breathe. Yep. But if you gather up the skivvy first, make it really nice and thin and then stretch it over Bubba's head like Jack's head, you'll mm. find that he'll that all of a sudden he'll go straight through and he'll be happy. Mm. Mm. And so what we need to do in the first part of getting a woman into labour is we need to allow that so we'll get that cervix to a point where it what we term a faces and opens up a little bit. So it gathers up and opens up a little bit. And there's multiple ways of being able to do that. But one of the ways is to put some gel, mm-hmm. which is a prostaglandin gel. What that does is it sort of changes the the structure of the the collagen within the uh, within the the cervix mm. and breaks it down mm. so that the cervix starts to open. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing, and some doctors mm. use, and I'm I'm a fan for it as well is using a balloon. So what we do is we place a small little catheter, which mm. is like a little piece of tubing that goes through the cervix because the cervix, you've got to remember, has got a bit, it's like a tunnel. Yeah. And we place a small catheter down the tunnel 
Mm-hmm. And then there's a balloon that sits on the inside of the cervix, so right next to the baby's head, and a balloon that sits on the outside of the cervix, which is in the vagina. Mm-hmm. And what happens overnight is if you imagine you've got a, let's say, for example, you've got a piece of pipe mm-hmm. and you put a balloon on one side and a balloon on the other mm-hmm. with the catheter in the middle, overnight those two balloons gently squeeze together right. and they'll open the cervix up so that the next morning mm-hmm. the doctor can easily break mm-hmm. the waters and bring you into labour. And how do you decide which is the best method? So how do I personally yeah. decide? So often when a woman has, and some women will know this if they've been induced before, that if you use the gel, sometimes mm-hmm. you not only need one dose of gel but you need then another dose oh, the next morning. Okay. So rather than avoid avoid a prolongation of mm. because some some women will know this that if they get the gel at say ten o'clock one morning mm. they might then get another dose of gel later on that afternoon mm-hmm. and then they're not ready the cervix isn't ready until the early hours of the morning that particularly happens a lot in the public sector right um, and whereas in the private sector we tend to give the gel at night. Mm-hmm. And if I'm concerned that at night when I'm giving the gel that the next morning I'm going to have to come back and give another dose Mm. of gel, Mm. rather than have the woman spend almost 24 hours waiting to go into labour, I'll put the balloon in. Right, okay. Because the balloon will mean that if I put it in, say, at 7 o'clock at night, by 7 a.m. the next morning, Mm. because it's a mechanical, it's not giving hormone, Mm -hmm. so it's only a mechanical dilatation, Mm -hmm. it tends not to get the woman into labour. Yeah. It can be a little bit uncomfortable, but it tends not to get the woman into labour so they can have a good night's sleep the next morning, break the waters without fear that we have to wait another six or 12 hours right. for that cervix to ripen. And it just means we're shortening the time interval. Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing worse than a woman coming into coming into a hospital and then not having a baby for mm-hmm. two days later. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's a long Particularly, time. Particularly, yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. No. No. So obviously the next morning your obstetrician breaks the waters. Yeah, but just want to add something before this. Before I went into the um, hospital, there was a, a, I'd met a girl in the waiting rooms for my, my doctor's surgery. Um, we were pretty much um, preg- pregnant exactly the same time and she'd gone in to have her baby the day before me um, and she we were staying in touch. Um, she was texting me about her experience. Right. And, um, so sharing notes on this obstetrician. What's that? <laughs> she was sharing notes. She was sharing ob- notes. Yeah, <laughs> she was sharing. Well, he, we, we had the same obstetrician. Right. Um, so, yeah, she was telling she was telling me about her. Um, she knew I was anxious and so she, she told me exactly what she was going through um, and she said that um, her doctor had induced her and she was sitting up watching Carl Stefanovic on the Today Show and I thought, and she said, and then she had the baby and she told me everything went well and she gave me a blow-by-blow um, um, description. description of the experience and I thought, you know what, she's done it, I can do it. Watching Carl Stefanovic on the Today Show, <laughs> I can do that. It was all, everything, that ex, that experience helped me. Again helped too. you as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, and that, that's that sense of community, yeah. isn't it? And, and we don't have enough of those positive mm. stories coming out. So let's talk about the birth because I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, we want to end on, yeah. obviously we've had the concerns about the fear of childbirth, which was more centred around the fear of actually having pain. Mm-hmm. So first thing in the morning, did your doctor break the waters? Did you have an epidural first? Yeah. What happened? Just tell, walk us through that. Yeah, he broke He broke my waters um, in the morning. I'm pretty sure it was around 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and he gave me a drip. Yeah, close. Um, and then he basically said goodbye and he said, um, look, I predict you'll be having your baby probably this afternoon about three o'clock, so I'll see you later. So then I thought, great, let's, uh, Carl Stefanovic, let's what, let's get, <laughs> let's get on board with Carl. Um, anyway, things all happened pretty quickly um, and my doctor had to come in about an hour after he said he'd see me later this afternoon and Jack was born pretty much two hours after he'd put the drip in. I'd had the epidural. Um, I'd followed the instructions of all of my girlfriends that had given me all that advice all those years. And I pretty much, as soon as I started feeling, um, you know, the contraction pain, I requested the epidural, um, and that again was pretty much a walk in the park. Everyone, everyone had said, you know, it's painful. It's this, it's that. And that again, it was just a little bit uncomfortable, but again, nothing to worry about. Um, so, so did you need anxiety. any assistance with the vaginal birth at all? Um, like a vacuum? So, yeah, he, Jack had to get vacuumed out. And what yeah. was the reason Jack yeah. had to be vacuumed um, out? He was a little bit distressed. Right. Um, 
probably not using the correct terminology, yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, his um, his heartbeat um, was a little bit irregular, and the midwife and um, my obstetrician was a little bit concerned, so he did have to get vacuumed down. Brilliant, and so it's obviously a very quick experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very quick. Um, you know, if you only had the the, the hormone drip for a short amount mm. of time, and then you had the bubba. Your overwhelming sense of how that experience was. I mean, obviously you'd built it up prior to getting pregnant mm. and in, in the times that you've been speaking to other people about this whole fear about having childbirth. When you look back on that experience mm. now, how you feel? No, oh, honestly had was completely unvalidated. I don't know why I was so worried. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, I'd, honestly, if I could turn back the time, I would have um, started been been a mother years ago because honestly wasn't there really wasn't anything to worry about. Yeah, I worked myself up for no reason. And um, in terms of your recovery, then because a lot of people obviously go, well, the childbirth. Yeah, I mean you you were fortunate because a lot of women do have very long labours. I mean, I think you obviously were designed to have babies if mm-hmm. you had a, a, such a quick birth. How was your recovery after the birth? Um, I had to have some stitches. Uh, so that was obviously a little bit painful, but it was managed with um, with ice. And um, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't. I don't really remember it being overwhelmingly painful. Um, you've got your baby. You know, I had Jack. Um, we were just in a complete love bubble. So that 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 kind of feeling. I don't, I don't remember it being uncontrollable. No, uncontrollable. Yeah. Okay. No. And when did you feel that you got back to where you were normally, like from a from a physical perspective? Mm. Um, I was pretty. I was. That's another thing. I was very active during my pregnancy. I, I had a, a personal trainer. I was training with her every week until I was thirty eight weeks. Right. Um, and I was also active, very active. I was walked a lot. Thirty eight weeks. I think I walked fifteen thousand steps. So I was really active. And then, because um, exercise is really important to me, so pretty much. I think I bounced back after about eight to nine months. I think we can't underestimate the importance of um, exercise. There's mm. certainly a lot of studies that have shown that exercise during pregnancy helps with mm. labour and the labouring process. But most importantly, mm. I think it also helps with the mental well-being of a yeah. woman. Um, and we, when we talk about postnatal depression, mm. there's actually perinatal depression mm. and anxiety, mm. which means that there can be depression and anxiety before birth. Mm-hmm. And also after birth. So I think mm. maintaining good health and exercise, mm. not only during the pregnancy but soon after birth, mm. will, will decrease the levels of anxiety and, and depression. Did you have any issues in terms of mental health after Bubba was born? No, absolutely not. No, very lucky. And was Jack a good sleeper? Yep, a very, yeah, very good sleeper and he still is. Yeah, you're lucky. Yeah, very and lucky. I, I think the, the biggest problem or the biggest trap a lot of people get into after the baby's born is that, they try, particularly women and, and, and men, try to maintain the same level of activity that they do during the day but mm. not realising that at night, of course, they're up as well, either feeding the baby or, you know, looking at caring for the baby or the baby's crying. And I always encourage my patients to do two things. Number one, look after one another, particularly mm-hmm. if you're in a couple. But, um, you know, if you're, in a, in, you're a single woman yourself, you know, have your supports in place. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is... not. If the baby's sleeping during the middle of the day, to actually sleep during the middle of the day. Yep. Because the biggest issue in terms of feeling postpartum blues or depression, mm. a lot of it's relating to just not sleeping mm-hmm. well. Yep. And if we were to get, you know, 10 blokes mm. and make them not sleep for mm. 10 days, a lot of them are going to be depressed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's really, I mean, you were fortunate, obviously, that Jack was a good sleeper, mm. but some of my patients where the baby's crying all night, then sleeps during the day. Well, you need to adjust and yeah. try to sleep during the day to, to minimise your own risk yep. in terms of mental health. And that definitely was one of the um, huge pieces of advice that I got to sleep when the baby's sleeping during the day. I remember that. Right. And I did. When Jack was napping, I was napping too. Did you have a lot of help at home? Well, I had well, my mum and my dad and, um, and Craig was obviously very helpful. There was a big support network. So, yeah. I, yeah. I definitely, I had plenty of time to sleep. And, and look, I, you know, in, and in terms of that, I mean, obviously at the moment we're in, the, and if this podcast goes out during our quarantine period, there's going to be a lot of uh, women and, and men who are going to be listening to this podcast mm. during the quarantine period where like elderly parents may not be mm. around in order mm. to assist them. And I think, you know, obviously we're there to protect our 
elders in terms of, of in terms of this coronavirus. But the issue, I think, is it also then puts women in in a vulnerable position because they do feel isolated mm. at a time when they do need supports. Mm-hmm. So if you're not feeling well, particularly in relation to your own mental health, and and or as a couple, you know there are avenues for you to to, to go and reach out to. So certainly Panda mm. um, and Lifeline. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, whilst we're in quarantine and whilst we're in a position where we're isolated, we shouldn't feel like we're completely socially isolated. We're isolated physically from people but not from a social perspective and we're very fortunate Mm. in this era of communication in terms of television, telephones, internet, that we can still communicate. Mm. And I think it's important that if you're feeling worried, anxious, depressed that you reach out and look you know the federal government also has placed a lot of effort in maintaining telehealth so that doctors can continue and psychologists can continue to communicate uh, with their with their patients and of course midwives as well Mm. so if you had some advice for a woman who's if you had advice Mm. for yourself for your younger self Mm -hmm. And there'll be women who are similar to you who are probably, you know, flying around the world and, and busy uh, in their own business or mm. their work. What advice, and, and they were worried, you know, underlying was mm-hmm. this level of anxiety in terms of pregnancy and childbirth, what would be the advice you would give mm-hmm. that, that woman? I'd, pro- I'd probably try and ask them just to calm down and relax a little bit but also do their research. I'd research my obstetrician before I chose him. Um, based on Google reviews and reviews on Instagram and social media and I'd also spoken to someone that knew him um, and I honestly can think that he contributed a lot to my experience. Um, so I would, I would probably recommend um, choosing an obstetrician that would, that would suit their personality. That would, uh, He had a, a major um, um, part in the success of my pregnancy and my birth experience. I think that's a reasonably good point. A lot of people will see an obstetrician when they're pregnant. Mm. And I often get asked by colleagues of mine, uh, whether it be medically, who may not want to come and see me because they know me too well, uh, you know, which which doctor should I go to? Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll always say I don't think there's necessarily the best doctor, but I think there is a, a... a doctor for you or mm. the best doctor for you. Mm-hmm. And it may not be that, you know, your mate had the best doctor, mm. but you got the best doctor. And I think at this point in time where we, you've got the luxury, particularly before you become pregnant, mm. to be able to go around and see a few people, that it's a bit like, I suppose, I mean, not, it's not similar, but, you know, you already said you were in the car industry. So, you know, you're not going to go out and go, oh, I'm just going to get a Mercedes, that one. <laughs> you, you, you're going to want to test drive a few and go, okay, well, you know what, actually I'm going to get that model, make a number, or yep. alternatively I'm actually going to get myself a Porsche. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think in a way the same with doctors and particularly in the area of obstetrics and gynaecology and also, and also midwifery, mm-hmm. It is a very emotive time in a woman's life, mm. the whole pregnancy journey and particularly the childbirth, that you do need to have someone that you feel you can trust, you can develop mm. rapport with. And often seeing that doctor before, that midwife, before mm. you become pregnant is a good way of mm. seeing whether they get the right person mm-hmm. for you. And, look, you know, I'd like to say that every Google review is good, but, you know, unfortunately mm. some patients will find that their doctor even though they love their doctor, mm. they'll find that there's a bad Google mm. review against them. And that's just a reflection of the fact that I said before, there are some doctors that are good for certain people mm-hmm. and some that aren't good for certain people. So I certainly encourage any woman contemplating mm. pregnancy to actually seek out their caregiver beforehand. And I think mm-hmm. that's a good sage bit of advice. What about a woman who's pregnant mm. and is gearing up for their birth? Mm-hmm. They've got the right obstetrician yep. or they've got the right midwife. And they're still fearful about the birthing experience. Um, that's a good question. Um, personally, towards the end of, well, pretty much during my full pregnancy, I just decided to kind of switch off and not overanalyze it and think about it too much. I just focused on on the fact that women were born were born to do this, um, and I just I just tell them to try and switch off and just relax as much as possible. And as I did, 
exercise. I really believe that that my exercise contributed a lot to my my pregnancy and the success of my pregnancy and my birth. Just try not to overanalyze it, not overthink it. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing is to certainly discuss things with your caregiver mm. and say to them, look, you know, this is what my concern is, and. Some obstetricians and midwives will be quite good. And like you said, yeah. your obstetricians were quite good at being able to counsel you through that process. Yeah. But, you know, we're not all good at every single yeah. aspect of, of medicine. And, and often it may mean a referral to a psychologist yeah. to start and bundle things mm-hmm. so that you can come out of that appointment with the psychologist and go, well, this is what I'm worried about. Yeah. I'm worried about this. Mm-hmm. And that then gives the your caregiver, midwife or obstetrician, the opportunity to be able to say, okay, I can see that you're worried about this. Now let's put a plan in place in order to mitigate you against feeling bad, take you on the journey and make sure that at the end of it you feel like you're part of it and invested in it. Mm-hmm. Really good idea. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time. I think, you know, this is, this is it's really important and, and I'm hoping this whole birth series that we're doing um, in conjunction with Tiny Hearts is is educating women in terms not only in their pregnancy but also on the wonderful ac- mm-hmm. aspects of childbirth. And we're, we're obviously going to talk about some aspects that are less desirable. But I really thank you very much for sharing your story and I'm hopeful that's going to help a lot of women. Thank you for inviting me, Dr. Joe. No nice worries. to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, so, look, feel free to um, subscribe to the podcast, uh, uh, Bump Birth and Beyond. Uh, we we continue to do episodes every fortnight and I certainly look forward to um, uh, speaking to you all once again.